0: What I'm sharing with you is my own experience, strength, and hope. And if it doesn't resonate with you, if you have a different opinion from me, if you have a different idea, if your sponsor does it different, that is just fine. Every one of us who gets up here and is willing to be vulnerable and share with you is going to share with you from my recovery journey. And so please bear that in mind. I am not a representative of Al-Anon. I'm, you know, this is just, um, I'm just taking you through my journey um, for uh, recovery. Um, One person came up to me and asked me if I was opposed to counseling, uh, you know, outside counseling, and when I, because I was talking about my first sponsor, getting involved in counseling and then not sharing purely Al-Anon. I am not opposed to counseling, I did some, some, therapy for almost a year after my son died it's very helpful so that didn't mean that and my opinions about sponsorship are my opinions about sponsorship Um and basically they changed in june so you know my last my last uh... workshop if i would have shared to you about sponsorship i had a little bit of a different opinion on it then but because of this critical situation that happened i changed a lot of my philosophies personally about sponsorship so, um, anyhow, on, on we go to my relationship with God, and I'm going to tell you just a little bit about my past. When I was four years old, my mom woke me up on a Sunday morning, and. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. And in case you didn't know, her apple made its way all the way across here. <laughs> Anyhow, when I was four years old, my mother woke me up on a Sunday morning, and she says, your Auntie Annie is going to raise you to be a Catholic. And so I, got, I was dressed, and I was sent out the back door across the alley um, to my Auntie Annie's house. And my aunt took me to church until I was um, 11 or 12 years old, and we moved to the suburbs. But every single morning, no matter what, on Sunday, we went to church because my aunt, Tiani was like the Murphy's Oil soap lady. I mean, she was really dedicated to the holy water and, and, you know, making sure that the varnish vents Benches were highly polished, and she was one of the ladies who dusted the Stations of the Cross. And I'm not putting that down or making a joke out of it. She was really, I mean, she was a dedicated, trusted servant in the Catholic Church. And so, uh, consequently, once Auntie Annie made a decision that she was going to raise me Catholic, I mean, I was a Catholic. (laughs) So, I went to church. And, you know, a little girl, it was confusing, um, i didn 't know if God lived in the box. I was very curious to know whether the nuns had hair. I, I wanted to know whether they had handbags or if everything they owned were in these pockets. I wondered if they wore pantyhose. Um, I wanted to look under their dress I, you know and see if what they looked like if they had legs or you know it was just such a curious thing to me and so and and I loved the the garments that the priests wore, and I loved I went to a church that was very much like a cathedral it was in in Chicago it was marble and gold and very ornate. it was so beautiful, and it was back when they said the the, the masses in latin um, and so it was a it was a very ritualistic thing however i 'd get home, and then what would end up happening is um My mom and dad didn't believe in any church, didn't have a a God as far as I knew. And the way that I was controlled sometimes, because I was such a self-willed child, was uh, my mother would say, if you do that again, God will get you. And then I'd come home and I'd say, oh, mom, look, I fell off my bicycle. And she'd say, that's what God did to you for hitting your sister yesterday so that 's how it was used in my house, so then i 'd go to church on Sunday, and you know there was all this all this ceremony around it all, and i didn 't know which kind, what kind of a God really lived in this box. I mean, here was all this ceremony, and people seemed to be praising and adoring God and having you know the the host put on their tongue, and the priest blessing each person, and then I would go home, and my mother's telling me that God is going to get me for my bad behavior or for my um, for my actions and my attitudes. So now, I'm in Al-Anon. As it turned out, I went to church, I need to tell you this, I went to church until I moved from Chicago, and what ended up happening is when I got into the suburbs in West Illinois, I went to church on my own. And I was like, driven to this thing. I was searching something, I didn't know what it was. I went to vacation Bible school, and because I didn't have very much self-esteem, I wanted to get the little star on my badge, and so I memorized, Bible verses, which isn't wasn't hard for me back then. I am dyslexic, but I have a really high IQ, and so I memorized Bible verses, and I'd get the little sticker, and I'd be the star student. And then I would go to the Catholic, um, to the youth organization, and to the Methodist youth organization, and I was always involved in something. And going to church on Sunday morning by myself without Auntie Annie. Now I'm married. Get ready, getting ready to marry Mr. B, and he is of the Mormon faith. And so we have this, you know, what are we going to do now? So we decided that he said to me he would be willing to get married in the Catholic Church and we'd raise, I would raise my children Catholic. He had kind of stepped out of the, the, the Mormon Church and uh, so I went to see the Monsignor and explained to him about Mr. B's religion and what we were going to do and this and that and he said, great, we can marry you behind the altar and you just promise to raise your children Catholic. Well, that's great. Well, then I happened to mention that Mr. B had been married before and not only that had a child by a previous marriage and the Monsignor went, oh, (laughs) we cannot have that here you must leave mr. b or and find yourself a nice little catholic boy and i walked out of the office and i thought well i'll be darned and i got mad i really got angry i remember driving home and blasting in the front door and telling my mother you aren't going to believe this but after all the time i've been spending in the catholic church i can't get married in the church and um so we called up a justice of the peace made an arrangement for him to show up at six o'clock in my living room on, a, on the Saturday, November 11th, and I got married in my living room by a Justice of the Peace. I'm here to tell you it works. <laughs> it doesn't matter, you know, we've been, um, we, all that matters is the wedding vows and we've managed to maintain uh, those for all these years and, you know, whoever it is that delivers them. And so from that time until I got into Al-Anon, the Catholic Church and God, I mean, I just abandoned that whole deal and I was on self will run riot and I was a one angry woman and I didn't know it I had been deeply affected by the disease of alcoholism I didn't know that I was marrying an alcoholic we got married we went off on a little two-day honeymoon came back from Salt Lake City to Ogden he goes to work on Monday morning and he doesn't come back for the next 22 years and he hates when I say that but he's out there and I'm in here (laughs) He says, Beverly, that wasn't exactly true. I was there sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, for the most part, alcoholism took him away for 22 years is what I'm really saying. Um, so anyhow, um, I, I now get into the program. You know, February 9, 1981, I'm looking at the steps on the, on the wall, and it says uh, the first two steps, the second and the third step, you know, are talking about God and a higher power and I'm thinking to myself well now I'm not going to be able to stay here either and then I, I ended up staying because I was committed to 28 days of Al-Anon whether I liked it or not I, because I promised the treatment center people I would do that <clears throat> so I went to Al-Anon for t- with my intention was to stay 28 days so I can fulfill the commitment with the treatment center because they told me I couldn't go back there and see my child now I want you to know, and this is not gonna come as a surprise to any of you, but love dies in active alcoholism. It just does. It it dies slowly over a long period of time, and all of a sudden, one day, there is more resentment and less love. And you have quit touching each other, and you have quit caring about what the other person thinks. You have quit caring about about your own appearance and, and what they think of you. I mean, it just all, dies and for each of us it dies in a different way but the fact is by the time we get here we are dead emotionally and I was emotionally dead when I got here so I am now only going to stay 28 days but what happened was because I have this incredible memory um, by the time the 28 days were up they had read the welcome and the closing and the steps and the traditions And back then, that group didn't read the concepts, but, um, you know, the slogans were on the wall, and somewhere close to the end of my 28-day commitment, I I am sitting in the meeting, and I'm listening to them read the opening or the closing, and somebody missed a word. And I thought, I know that word. But I didn't jump up because I knew, you know, that would be bad behavior in an Al-Anon meeting, so I didn't jump up and say, oh, that word should have been... But what I know today is that that was the day I claimed my chair. And from that day, I'm, actually, I was already going to more than the two promised meetings. I was going to a lot of meetings. I was taking my lunch hour on Tuesday and Thursday and going to the Louisville group. Um, I was going to Alpha. We were going to the Main Street group at night. I mean, we were, we were going to um, Chapter 9 meetings. You, I think here in Houston you all call them Chapter 9. We call them uh, family afterward meetings, and I, we were going to those up until the 9th. Or the 10th of May, George and I were still uh, affiliated with the treatment center and had to be there for a Saturday meeting. We were going to a lot of meetings. And, um, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at these steps and I'm feeling something about being here. I knew, I mean, I, I would like to tell you that I knew I was home. I just wanted to stay. I didn't know I was home. I didn't know I had died of this disease. I didn't know that coming back here was gonna be my rebirth that I was gonna start over again and, and I was gonna have a life beyond anything. I had no idea what you were all about. And think about this. If somebody like is checking out your groceries and for some reason or other it comes up and you say, well, I've been a member of Al-Anon for 21 years, they go, oh, what's Al-Anon? How do you explain that to somebody? You know, it's not really just a program that's for the family and friends of alcoholics. How it is almost impossible because each of us have our own journey to try to tell somebody what really happens to us here, you know. If you were to say, "Well, I was I was lost and then I was found and and I, I found a God and and I and and all of these defects of characters changed into assets and and I was this ugly and and they're all standing there saying, "That'll be twenty nine dollars and fifty cents, please." I mean, that, there is no way that you can really tell anybody what we get here. You know, Al-Anon becomes a feeling. Al-Anon becomes a way of life. Al-Anon becomes something that, once we've been here for a while, we can't even imagine how we ever did without it, and certainly it becomes more valuable because once you experience it, you don't ever want to not be here. So, you know, I used to listen to the old timers and they'd say, I, I need Al-Anon more today than I did the day I found it, and i think, well, I sure hope I don't, <laughs> you know, cause that means, I would think that means they were getting sicker as time went on, but what they were trying to tell me is it becomes more valuable because they know what they would be going back to. They know what they would lose, and not just friendships and, and sharing, but the spiritual growth, because once you leave here, you're gonna stop the spiritual growth too, probably, I don't know. Um, Those of us who are here don't know what happens to those of us that don't come anymore. So we haven't got anything. All we know is we're here and we're growing. So, um, and then I'm thinking, I have to find a God. I have to find a God. How am I going to find a God? And, you know, I knew I was powerless. I knew my life was unmanageable. And then it says I have to come to believe in a power greater than myself that would restore me to sanity. And I didn't know I was insane. And insane, if you can't wrap yourself around the word insane, It's you can probably wrap yourself around negative thinking. And insanity is negative thinking, and we were just, I mean, we were accustomed to negative thinking. So, and then it says you have to make a decision I had never been given the opportunity to make a decision in my entire life. I had never been given a choice. And step three in big letters says, made a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understood him. So I want to go out there and say to Mr. B, what should I do? Help me. Should I turn right or turn left? Help me make a decision. I was so afraid. I mean, I'd never been allowed to make a decision For myself ever in my life and here in big bold print it says made a decision well what is your will in your life (sighs) i don't know what my will in my life are i'm supposed to make my very first decision to turn my will in my life over to a god that i dropped in the monsignor's office when i was 20 years old well that doesn't make any sense to me and so my son Steve, who was in the program at the time, he had um, some sobriety, and he was one of those know-it-all kids because he was hanging around with people like Bob White, and um, and I mean he just thought he knew everything, and he was hanging around at you know at Marceline and Bob's house, and he, and with Jerry and Bobby and and Albert, and we had giants in Dallas, and my kid is in the thick of them, and they're, and he's he's running he's running with Bobby, and I mean he's just in the thick of recovery and he's growing. I mean, I could see the spiritual change happen to him. I saw it happen. I didn't know what it was, but I saw the day it happened to him. And so I said to him one day, hey Steve, um, what is your will in your life? He goes, Mom, you're gonna have to find out for yourself. <laughs> I know what my will in life are, but I don't know what your will in life are. Your will in life might be different from my will in life. <laughs> And if I told you what I turned over, he says, it wouldn't mean anything because it would be different for you. And I thought, I'm just going to slap him. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. sighs> so, weeks went by, and I didn't do anything more about turning my will and my life over to the care of God because I didn't know who I was turning it over to. I mean, I don't know who I am, so how in the world am I going to figure out what I'm going to turn over to this God? I don't know what this God looks like. So, anyhow, one day Steve comes back and he goes well, Mom, have you turned your will in your life over yet? Did you figure out what it was? And I said, not really. And he goes, Mom, it's easy. Okay, are you ready? I'm going to give you the answer. It's your actions and your attitudes. That's all it is. We make a decision all by ourselves to turn our actions and our attitudes over to the care of God every single day. It's that simple. You do it in the morning, on your knees, in your prayer, I'm going to make a decision to give God my actions and my attitudes. Now, He is not responsible if self will comes charging in, you know, and, and I do something obnoxious. It's not God's fault. It is my self will run riot. So here I am with this knowledge that I have to turn my actions and my attitudes over to God. And what is God? What is a higher power? For everybody sitting in this room, God is different. And that's the, that's the wonderful glory of being involved in Al-Anon is all of, our, all of our gods can be different. Our god could be a tree. Our god can be a coffee cup. Our god can be a sponsor. Our god can be, well, not your husband. You would not want your husband. But most of us came here with our husbands being our gods or our wives being our gods or our children being our gods. But they're asking us to pr- turn it over to somebody who is capable of helping us make some right decisions for our life. And so I didn't know what to do because this scorekeeping God had always kept me in fear. So I had to come to believe in the power and how it happened for me. And it was just, I mean, it's a crazy little story, but it was as profound as Bill Wilson's burning bush. I mean, I'm telling you, it was that big of a deal for me. And I pray if you have not found a God of your understanding that you have some kind of a burning bush and you go, oh, oh. God cares about me, God loves me, God wants the very best for me. Whatever the higher power, whatever the God, whatever you call it, it doesn't matter. As long as you begin to understand that there is something in the universe that has that knows you by name, and God knows me by name. Sometimes, he's, sometimes he says, oh my dear, dear Beverly, you are such a spoiled brat. <laughs> you can't have everything you want. <laughs> But we're working on it and he's doing a pretty good job. Anyhow, I worked in a bank as a teller and I got free checks in my bank, you know, as you do, that's when, and you get free checking account. My son worked at the Tom Thumb as a night stalker, and a lot of times by the end of the day, they would have broken, dented things cut. They'd cut with a razor blade, and it was logical because most of them were doing drugs and drinking in the parking lot, so their razor blades were not going really straight. So they had a lot of broken, indented stuff by the end of the night. So I would give my son a check with a date made out to the Tom Thumb, and and my signature and then all I had to do was fill in the amounts was that not a little controlling anyhow I uh, and then he would buy he had the opportunity to buy this stuff at 630 in the morning when they got off shift so he knew what I liked and so he'd buy me groceries well if the check got stale dated I would take that check from him give him a new check with a with a better date on it he would put it in his little wallet and I would take the check rather than write void in my checkbook because I'm perfect and I don't do void in my checkbook. I don't throw checks away, even though they're free. Um, I would run over to the Tom Thumb that very day, buy milk and bread, fill in the blanks, and spend my check. Because I didn't like anything imperfect in my checkbook. So I have one of these checks in my, in my wallet this day, and I'm on my way over to the Tom Thumb, but I decide first to go to Walmart. And I go into Walmart, and I picked up a few things. I take out my billfold, and I write the check to Walmart and I pay for my stuff and I go out and when I get to the Tom Thumb I have my milk and bread and I go into my wallet and the check made out to the Tom Thumb is gone. Now Babs B in Dallas tells me I'm not supposed to share this publicly because it is not a good thing but one day when I was sharing the steps at Addison Group I said, and I have never so much as lost a sock. Now I think Babs has six children, and obviously when you have six children, there's a little chaos in the house. And afterwards, she came up to me and she says, Beverly, don't share that publicly anymore. That is not funny. (laughs) That is very sick. So here I am, the woman who's never lost a sock and I've lost a check. So I'm standing there, and of course, everything I'm thinking of is, oh my God, they could buy the store, they could do this and that and the other, and the bank is closed, I can't put stop payment on it. I was just frantic, so I made little sticky notes and I pasted them on every register, don't accept checks so-and-so, and... I go out. Finally, I go home. I'm frantic. I don't know what to do. I'm trying to think maybe I could call the bank president. He could open up everything. We could start all over. And I mean, I mean my mind is going way out there. And you're laughing because yours would do the same. <laughs> and I get home and I'm thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, Beverly, you know what? Make dinner. Do you know what Having the thought, make dinner, was a surrender. That's a surrender. It got my focus off of what I was was focused on and obsessed with into moving into something that I had power over. I did not have power over the check. I had power over the potatoes. I had power over the pork chop, I had power over the potato peeler, I could do that, so I changed my clothes, I came in the kitchen, and I says, okay, potatoes, I reached out, get the potato peeler, and I no sooner put the potato peeler through the first potato, and the telephone rang, and it was Gracie from my bank, and she goes, hi, Beverly, and I said, yes, yeah. she says, this is Gracie, and I said, hi, Gracie, she said, did you lose something And I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I did. And she said, I cannot believe we have people as stupid as you working for our bank. (laughs) She says, whatever possessed you to write a check to the Tom Thumb? And then why did you do that? And I told her, and, and I says, well, how did you know I lost the check? And she says, well, I was in Walmart a couple of minutes, probably right after you. And Gracie filed checks for a living. And it was before they had the the signature stamp on the back of the check where it says endorsement here. It was just a plain white piece of paper. It was pictured, you know, pictures on the front, but it was plain white on the back. And Gracie used to take checks and match the signature to the signature card in these long boxes. And Gracie had done that for 15 years. All day long, she put signature, checks in the signature boxes and checked and verified the signatures. And when she saw that piece of paper, it was upside down on the floor in the Walmart by the register. She says to herself, that looks like a check. And she bent over and picked it up. And when she called me and told me she had found my check, I knew that God knew my name. And I literally slid down my cabinet onto my kitchen floor, and I cried. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried, because I had been asking God for a burning bush. Show me something big enough that I can see you. It, You know, something where I really know it's you and me. That there couldn't be any confusion, that you knew my name. And I mean, that was as big of a burning bush as you could possibly get. And I slid down on the floor, and as I sat there thinking to myself, how much, uh, how, if, how, can you imagine... The coincidence in that—that that Gracie would be the next person in line and find my check—and then all of a sudden I began to think, "I don't think this. God is showing me Himself even further." He says, "But look at this, Beverly," and I get to thinking to my—you know—inside of me, I'm thinking, "I never made a call about Al-Anon. I never—we never made a call about Alcoholics Anonymous—and we had two kids in recovery. I'm in Al-Anon. He's in in AA." and we never made a phone call. We didn't even know we had alcoholism. And it was because God sent an employee of my bank to me and she had been missing for a couple of days and God has come to come, come to get every one of you, whether it's through a public service announcement from the Al-Anon service office on your television set, if it's an employee, if it's a poster in your children's school, if it's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous that lives across the street, every single one of us at some point in time was given the message about recovery. We may not have realized it, we may not have written down any phone number, but somebody came and got us who was directed by God to say, give that poor girl the message. And my fellow employee at the bank, Margaret, gave me the message. Her son almost died of an overdose and she was missing from work for three days and when she came back i said where have you been and she starts to tell me about her son's alcoholism and i'm thinking oh my god i mean i'm not saying any of this out loud because i don't i mean it was the first day that that little crack in denial opened and i visualized the pills in the washing machine and the burnt tweezers over steven's gear shift knob and the and he had he had a couple of bags of marijuana in the trunk of his car. He was saving his children from going to jail, and finally somebody said, "You could go to jail too, George. You need to you need to get rid of that stuff." And so um, she's telling me about all these things, and I'm thinking, "Oh my God, that stuff is going on in my house." And as a result of that, my husband and I made an appointment for a family evaluation at the treatment center, focusing mostly on the younger boy. And we all went there, and at the end of the evaluation, they sent us home and said they were convinced that somebody had alcoholism, but they didn't know who, and to go home and practice, and when we figured out who the real alcoholic was, to bring him or her back. My behavior was so bizarre, they didn't know whether I was alcoholic. (laughs) Now, surely they could tell, because I was so cute. Um, so anyhow, I am sitting there and I'm thinking about Margaret and I'm thinking about the, you know, I'm thinking about al and I'm thinking about Alcoholics Anonymous and I'm thinking about how we got here and that the kids, you know, at that moment everybody was sober and I thought, oh my God. Oh my God, I have a God. And so at that moment I thought, I have come to believe. And for a moment I had sanity I realized that God had gifted me with this program and the knowledge that you were here. I had no idea what I was going to get from you, but that you were here for me. And that I could come for as long as I want, a day at a time. You know, it was not a big commitment. It's just a day at a time. That's all we're asked is just to come to Al-Anon or alcoholics Anonymous. a day at a time. That's it. And then later on, I found out or I heard from a tape of a man named Gene Duffy, who talked at the Spirit of Houston conference in, in the early years of that convention. And he had just returned from having a heart attack. He was a speaker, talked all over the United States, and I loved him. He was a gruff, sarcastic, um, belligerent, um, alcoholic, my kind of guy. Um, just, I love those crusty, um, he, he cussed from the podium, and he was just, he was just my guy. And I could hear Gene, and I loved listening to him, and somebody ended up, I don't know how I got it, if it was in a tape trade, I cannot tell you how I got that tape, but I got that tape and I listened to it, and he had been off the off uh, convention speaking for one year, and he'd come back after he had a heart attack, and he made a talk that he never, ever made again. Gene had a canned talk. No matter where he talked or when he talked, it was always the same talk, but for whatever reason, He had had a spiritual experience because he almost died apparently from this. I think he had open heart surgery. I'm not really sure. But he talked about finding the evidence of God before you came into the program. And after I had my own spiritual experience in the kitchen, I began to lay a foundation that was as solid as it could be based on my experiences where God intervened way, way before I believed in God and today that's my foundation and through my son's death and my husband's job loss and my father's death and the grief process that we've been through my foundation never washed away it was so solid and I'm going to tell you a couple of these situations because what this is really all about is for you to relate for you to look into your own heart and find your own evidence of god but sometimes you go i don't know what that looks like and so that's why we that's why we trade information here so we can relate to each other and please feel free to take what you like and leave the rest you know that's i you don't have to believe my way i'm just sharing with you what brought me to the evidence of god that i rely on so strongly today um we bought a little house through the GI Bill when we lived in Kaysville, Utah, and George and I were just newly married probably about two years. And it, it was, you know, the wheels, the cogs and the wheels of the of the government system move very slowly. And so months went by while they were working on our loan for the GI, on the GI Bill. And so finally, the, the um, little real estate lady said, you know, if you guys want, I'm going to give you the key. You can go in there, shampoo the rugs, you know, wash the floors, clean out the cabinets, but don't paint any walls or anything until, you know, until closing, but you can get things ready. Wash the windows, you know, clean the blinds, whatever you want to do. So we did that. So one night we're going over there, and it's December 5th in Kaysville, Utah. And we had been there all night. We packed a little lunch and had a picnic and he had a few beers and we shampooed the rugs and cleaned some things up and had enjoyed the evening. And it was very late when we got home. And I don't know why it is, why he did this, but he put both of the kids in the front seat of my old pickup truck. And I had an old Chevrolet pickup truck and I don't know what year it was, but it was you know maybe a 60 or something. But it was way back when the shift was on the steering wheel and you had a manual choke and so he's got a brand new company car a station wagon and he takes off in front of me and I'm following behind and this truck is kind of sputtering a little bit the way a cold vehicle back then did and we get we decided to take the upper road home instead of the interstate so we drive up and as you approach the upper road we were on an incline and it was a stop sign well he proceeds through the stop sign and across the four lane, back then they were four lanes, two northbound lanes and two southbound lanes, and we, he proceeds across the four lane and he starts on down the highway. I go to proceed across the four lane and my truck died and I was in the two lanes of the northbound oncoming traffic and when I looked up I saw what I absolutely knew without a shadow of a doubt was a semi-truck coming and I had my two little babies laying in the front seat and I began to panic. And suddenly, I became peaceful I can I it was like I had the experience yesterday I remember the peace that flooded over me and every thought was correct turn off the radio turn off the light adjust the choke don't flood the car don't give it too much gas be really careful when you turn it on I could hear these simple instructions I heard them. I heard him like, and I know today that God had moved into the front seat of my car, and he was giving me directions, and I tried that old truck again, and, and it started up, and when I went to start again, it died again, and I thought, then the next thought was, don't flood it, don't get excited, I'm looking, the truck is coming closer, the, the lights are getting bigger, I, the babies are there, all these thoughts, and you know, all of this is happening in a flash, and I thought, then try again, Beverly, it's okay, try again careful. Adjust the choke. Put it in neutral. Turn it on. Don't flood it, Beverly. And I got that truck going and the motor's running and I put on the gas and it went across and I tr- crossed the two um, northbound lanes and I pulled over to the side of the shoulder and I sat there and I started to cry and I started to shake and I, I mean everything in me just lost it. I totally lost emotional control. My husband gets out of his car. He knocks on the window and he says, what the hell were you doing? <laughs> I mean, he was scared, and you know, fear comes out in anger. Fear always comes out in anger, and and he was afraid. And, And I says, the truck stalled. That went down as one of my solid bricks. My kids were little. It was the early 60s back then. And that was the evidence of God. He had sat in the front seat of my car and helped me get that truck across that four lane. And you know what, you know how close it was? I got that truck across and that truck went by and I felt the back end of my truck go like this because that's how close it was. The next thing that happened is on the day I'm gonna have my first child. He's alcoholic, does not wanna come home from work, does not understand the urgency of a pregnancy. And they're saying, George, go home. George, go home. And I'm calling them saying, oh, I'm in labor. Please come home. George, go home. You know, my mother's saying, get him home. You're in labor. You've got to go. The doctor's saying, yes, you're in labor. You need, to come. you need to come to the hospital right now. So, I mean, all these people. But I'm calling him and I'm saying, please come home. And he's got one more thing to do. He's got one more thing to do. And so I'm standing at the door, you know, and, and I'm looking for the cars. You know, the fifth car will be him, you know, if you count to five, the red one and all that stuff. I'm doing that. And up comes the of Weaver milkman, and he was a young guy. And I'm standing there, and I am the biggest, I promise you, I am the biggest pregnant woman with one child you have ever seen. And it was all out in front. And I'm standing there, and I'm, and you know, I guess I must have looked frantic to the we were milkman, and there's a screen there, and he's got the little milk in the milk container. And he comes up to the door, and, and I open the door, and I took it, and he says, oh my God, are you okay? And I said, I'm gonna have a baby, and my husband won't come home from work. <laughs> and he said, well, you know what, lady, I've got five little children. And he says, and, and I, I'm going to tell you something, if your husband's not here in five minutes, you're going to the hospital in a milk truck. Now, I did not have to go to the hospital in a milk truck because Mr. B did in fact show up in that five-minute period of time. But the fact is, God sent me somebody to take me to the hospital to deliver my baby. and And it was like I was assured that I wasn't going to be all by myself. And so that was the evidence of God. Okay. Another time was when 1978, we moved to Texas and, um, he, he has been there a number of months and he's got he's got a real estate woman and they have an agenda and she's got a bunch of houses that she's going to show me she gives me a legal pad of paper and a pen and she says I'm going to show you a lot of houses and by the end of the day you're not going to remember any of them so I want you to write down details of each house so that when you're making your decision you'll remember which houses they were so I get my little legal pad and I'm trying to keep up and I don't know how many houses we saw that day a lot of houses a lot of houses and, um anyhow, I'm finally discouraged there was not the home when you walk in it, and you go, oh. I mean, even back then, before I was you know, had any spiritual knowledge or any spiritual program, there were times when you just knew stuff. And I just didn't know anything about a house that day. I'm looking for a house. I can't find a house, can't find a house. And she kept saying to me, do you find anything you liked? And I'd say, no, it's not really. This one is nice except for, and that one's nice except for. But no one house really spoke to me. And so we're driving down Village Estates Drive, and she says, well, Time's out. You've got to go home on an airplane tomorrow. She says, I have showed you everything that I have in this price range, and you're going to have to pick a house. And he's in the back seat saying, yeah, you're going to have to pick a house. And, you know, they're both gnawing on me. Um, she eventually came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> anyhow, you know what I was dealing with that day. And um, and I said, but I can't find a house. And I don't think it's, it's He says, well, pick something. And um, so we go. We're heading on down Village Estates Drive to go back to the office, and they're both telling me I had to pick something. And I said, "Oh, did we see that one?" And she went, "No, it's not my listing." And I said, "Well, I'd like to see it." And she, and I said, "Could we please see it?" I says, "It says Century 21 on it." She says, "Yeah, but it's not my company. It's not my listing." And I says. Well, please let me see that one. So she pulls up into the front of the house and she says, if the key fits their lockbox, we can go in. If not, she says, it's late. Basically, it was like, I've had enough of you. And um, anyhow, her key opened the lockbox and we went in and I got as far as the foyer and I said, this is my house. Now, I don't know how I knew that, I just said to her, this is my house. It was exactly what I had envisioned. I wanted a desk in my kitchen, I wanted a split bedroom, I wanted a shower stall in my master bedroom, in the bathroom, um, and, and the kids could have their own. It had a big living room and a great big country kitchen and a two car garage and a big yard for a dog. It was everything that I wanted, and I said to her, this is my house. And um, anyhow, it turned out it was in our price range, it was available, everything was perfect about it, and I still live in that house today, and it has served us well. You know, it ha- it was a place where, because of the arrangement, my father had his own little place down there, it was a place where the kids could be. It now holds our business, you know, and and um, it, it, the big backyard has held two great big dogs, and you know, the Golden Retriever just absolutely loves that yard. That, it, I planted some seeds, and they grew into trees, Huge, huge trees. And so life has evolved and death and death has happened in that house, but it's my place, you know. And on May 15th of this year, I went outside for meditation for the first time and I really got to see what I had created in that backyard for 24 years. I mean I had plant I have planted everything that is in that yard all the bushes, all the trees, everything, they're all things that between God and I, we manifested together and and I was, you know, I planted the seeds and God grew the plants and and it was just wonderful. And then the messenger I've already told you about, about getting to the program, about him sending Margaret to tell me about Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous and Drunk and Drug Addict Kids and I could hear her. She was my friend, I could hear her. So have these bricks, they are the cornerstone of my foundation and every time I might feel a little wishy-washy, which in the last two or three years never happens anymore. I have total reliance on God, but it took 19 years, 18 years for me to feel totally secure. And on a, God, on a day when I'm thinking, I don't, I don't not have faith that God's not there. Sometimes I just wanna see him and I says, God, if you could just throw a penny on the ground somewhere so I could put it in my pocket. And it no sooner, just that fast, I'll turn around and somewhere laying within a few feet of where I am will be a penny. And I pick it up and I put it in my pocket. And anytime I'm feeling a little insecure, I go, God is here. God is with me. God is with me. And I throw those pennies into a crystal box. And then I transferred those into another big bowl that says miracles. And so I am always aware of the evidence of God. And sometimes I just need that little penny in my blue jeans, you know, and I feel it. I keep junk in the jacket pocket when I travel because sometimes it's a little unnerving to go through airports now. And I keep all this junk in my pocket and I think, well, that came from so-and-so and and this is from so-and-so. And I rattle around in my pocket and I have all this junk in there and I feel my friendships and I feel God in there and everything. And it's just silly stuff, but you know what? It's what I do and it makes me feel like, you know, there's days when I just need to touch something material that reminds me about the spiritual aspect of God. <clears throat> so, that was my path. And it, you know. And then my son, I, I found out that my, well, we got my dad in October, in September of 1988. In October of 1988, my son called, and, and he had been in the hospital for 10 days. He says, I'm in full-blown AIDS, and I'm gonna die. They said, I won't live a year, and, um and I call and then I had taken my dog to the vet that week and he says Beverly I'm going to give her one more shot but he says this is the last shot of magic and he says the next time she goes down she's not going to come up and and he said this isn't going to work again and so I call my sponsor and I said to her you know what there is no God I'm tired now I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I said, you can take this evidence of God and all this stuff with God and all these steps, and you can just take it, and, and you know, I, I don't believe in it anymore. I said, you promised me that God would never give me more than I could handle. And I says, here I am. I've got my father dying of cancer. My son just calls me on the phone. He's in full-blown AIDS. He's not going to live a year. And the vet told me I'm going to lose my dog the next time she goes down. And I says, God wouldn't give me all this. I said, this is way too much. And she says, okay, Beverly, you know what? Only one day at a time. You just have to get through all this one day at a time. And you will always see the evidence of God. In the Lord's Prayer, it says, give us this day our daily bread. And I am here to tell you from the day that I got that phone call until the day that I called that sponsor and she told me what to do, there has never been a day when I have not seen the evidence of daily bread. And this gal that I'm sponsoring that I'm telling you is, told you is lo- losing her husband, I talk to her every single day, and I see the evidence of the grace of God through the daily bread, which are the people hospice, a, a nurse with coffee, a brother who came, and then he, then the wife of the brother came, and, and the friends come, and the cards come, and the flowers come, and and you know, just this, all of a sudden, you just, you know, she brought him home from the hospital a couple of days ago, and he, you know, to die, And she brought him home, and some friends gathered, and I says, how are you doing? And she says, Beverly, I wish you could be here. She says, I am watching a miracle. And here was this man laying in the hospital, you know, just hadn't eaten or anything for four or five days. And she said, somebody come in with a sack of ribs. And he sat down there and said, maybe I'll have just one. And she says, they're laughing, and she says, and I see a smile on my husband's face. And it doesn't mean he's going to live, I mean he is dying there's no way but be, when when two or more of us are gathered, we bring life, even when there is dying and that's what happened to me people people loved me and cared for me, and things happened all through that period of time where the evidence of God was there. He didn't cause my son to have AIDS, he didn't cause my dog to grow old, he didn't cause my my father to have multiple myeloma but what he says and I heard this through another speaker is he will receive them and in the meantime I will give you daily bread and that's the promise that I got wasn't gonna mean that I was gonna cure my dad cure my husband make my dog back to being just a puppy but I was gonna get daily bread and and that's exactly what happened but what the sponsor says is I don't believe in that journal you write in but she says as long as you do with that every day that's fine with me but at the top of the page I want you to write something you're grateful for or somehow that you have seen the grace of God manifested in your life that day and I began to do that she says I don't want you to write another thing on that page until you write down how you have seen God work in your life that day and I promise you that that is how I got through the the, the next from 1988 until 1993 was to become acutely aware of how God was working in my life it wasn't to throw God away and say no God that would love me would do this to me because God didn't do it to me he asked me to participate he loved me so much he gave he gave me the opportunity to participate in my father's life in my son's life in my dog's life I mean, we are given wonderful opportunities. And so the dog came first, and I held the dog, and I felt her life go away. And I walked out of there knowing that if I could hold that dog while she died, I was capable of holding my father and my son. And that was the gift I got that day. God is so good to us here. But we have to learn to look. Look for the ways that God manifests himself in in our life and how he's telling us, I'm here. I'm here. I love you. I know your name. And that's how it goes. So in, the, in, in finding a God, we, we are gaining spirit spirituality. We have to understand the importance of ritual, of doing the same thing over and over as far as our spiritual life, to take time every day to acknowledge a God of our understanding, to take a moment every day to get on our knees, and I roughhouse, after I pray and meditate, Logan, I always say to her, get in your corner, and she lays on the corner of my bed. She's 80 pounds, and she's just a wonderful, big, old fuzzy dog. And some of you have met Logan. She comes to some conferences with us. And anyhow, she lays there, and when we're done, I, I put my book bag down, this is my book, and I go over there, I say, I'm going to get you. And then we do scratch and rub and poke and snarl and blow snot and just do all <laughs> kinds of stuff. And then I go, shh. And that dog will lay in the middle of whatever pose she's in. She lays there like, you know, like a statue and I get out of bed and I get on my knees and I do have a little ritual of prayer that I do that I have developed only for myself. It's stuff I put together. I've read non-conference approved books, conference approved books, you know. The AA 12 and 12 has a wonderful meditation in there. There's lots of resources. We don't have to stick to conference approved stuff when you're developing your prayer and meditation time. Some people sit quiet. Some people like to listen to music. Some people take walks. Some people ride in cars. Some people sit outside. Some people sit in their bed, you know. some. People people are quiet some people close their eyes some people open their eyes it doesn't matter just as long as you are communing with your higher power at some point and it's better to do it at the same time every day so i'm a little prayer ritual and logan lays there in whatever position she's in and then when i'm all done she knows i'm done i don't have to go okay she knows we're done and she starts all of the other the other nonsense but she is in tune to my ritual. And when I decided to go outside to pray and meditate on May 15th, she was miffed for two days. It was like, what about the corner, Mom? And what about the books? And what about Dad bringing the coffee? I mean, she was just like in a frenzy. On the third day, she woke up at 3, I'm not kidding, 3.30 in the morning. She had decided it was so much fun, she wanted to start earlier. <laughs> so it took us two or three days to get her into the thing. I don't go out there till 6.30 or 7, Logan, not any earlier than that. And then I promised myself, I promised myself I was going to sit out there as the weather turned cold. I had all this stuff. I made a shawl. I was going to use a sleeping bag. I got some afghans. I let it have a little candle out there. I have all my little stuff out there. I was going to sit in there in the cold. I want you to know I do not like to be cold. <laughs> so God's going to have to wait until April. And I went back to my old ritual of sitting in the bed. And then Logan was miffed again. It was like she was enjoying being out there. But I want you to know something. She is so in tune to the time of peace that we had a wild rabbit come within 10 feet of her and she knew it was there and she never moved she never moved she didn't move when the squirrel came up on the patio she didn't move when the red bird came up and normally she's a golden retriever she loves chasing squirrels up trees but she never moved during that period of time of prayer and meditation. As soon as we were done, and I pray, I rubbed her belly out there, did all this stuff. As soon as I was done, it was a free-for-all for the neighbor cats, the squirrels, the rabbits, everything, but she never moved. So if you don't think that what we do doesn't impact our children, our spouses, our pets, it does. But most of all, it's an impact on our own life to be able to have such a dedicated routine, such a dedicated ritual, that the dog got it. That tells you in itself. We don't fool around with this. It is a fact of life at my house. And so um, I have my routine, and it's a definite routine. I pray on my knees, I do the third and seventh step prayer. I have some spiritual books, conference approved and not conference approved. Um, I, I list three things that I'm grateful for I write in my journal and um, and so I have a committed I have a committed time no matter how small Um, here's a challenge think of some of your own past experiences and begin to build the foundation if you haven't got one it's so important my relationship with God is still growing Um, I still try uh, strive for complete faith and trust but I'm human and I fail. And that's where I have to cut myself some slack with this relationship with God. I am the only one who keeps score about my behavior and my failures and my successes. But see, God doesn't see failure in success. He just cheers me on saying, you tried. You know, you tried. That's all that really matters. I'm the one who judges me. My self-worth, my self-value is is tied up in the tasks, and, 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 and so I have to quit judging. I have to quit judging my life because I can't see me the way God sees me. He sees what we have heard before, the tapestry. He sees the front of the picture. I see all the knots and tangles, and untied pieces and the goofy colors that don't seem to blend but God sees the front and he sees how it's all unfolding and he is so happy with me for just trying and um, so then God is my life um, and I know the power is and I know it is there for me and as I grow spiritually I am more aware of the evidence of God and I don't take anything for granted Um, one of the other things that I have learned here is that I always trusted people and loved God and I was taught here to trust God and love people and the reason for that is people have clay feet and they're going to disappoint us but we get to love them no matter what but we always have trust in God always have trust in God and I have that backwards it took me about a year to get that to where I loved people and I trust God In the big book, it says that God is either everything or he is nothing. And I think that is just, I mean, that's basically what it has to be. I mean, there's no middle of the road with your belief in this God that you have, that we're asked to come to believe in. It is either everything or it is nothing. Um, There's been more things which I choose to call either epiphanies or eternal instances. Um, One year we went to Newport, Oregon, my husband and I on a little trip, and they had just opened up a new aquarium and we decided we would go. And it was the opening weekend and they didn't have a lot of the tanks filled but anyhow they had some beautiful displays in there and we went into a room that was a very solitary room with a huge glass cylinder in the center and it went from floor to ceiling there was no plant life in there there was nothing it was just filled with jellyfish and on the floor were lights of pastel colors and on the ceiling were lights of pastel colors and nothing in between just this huge glass cylinder And I sat there and I looked at the jellyfish. I, I had only seen jellyfish dead on beaches, and they say, don't step in them, they bite, you know? And so they're ugly and they're slimy and they're masses and everything. But when they are in a tank in their natural environment, there is absolutely nothing more gorgeous on planet Earth than a jellyfish. And they had little ones and big ones, and as they, as they went around, they swim like this. As they went around the, the aquarium and they went through the different lights, they turned peach and pink and green and blue and yellow and all these beautiful colors. And I sat there, and all of a sudden I became overwhelmed, and I cried and I cried and, I, and the, wept and the tears ran down my cheeks. The beauty just was just more than I could behold. And my husband's saying, would you please stop that? Everybody's looking at you, Beverly. Beverly, please don't embarrass me in front of all these people, all my good friends. And I, it was like, even though he was unhappy with what had happened to me, it didn't break the connection that I the spiritual connection that I was feeling, and I'll bet I stood there 20 minutes. Now here's the deal: I'm a photographer, so when I see something beautiful, I right away want to snap a picture of it so I can remember it forever. And what I have learned here is, as good as I am at my photography, and I am an excellent photographer, as good as I am, sometimes the most beautiful pictures don't work out. And as I tried to take the pictures of these of these. Um, jellyfish in this tank my pictures didn't work out and I got home and I was so disappointed because I wanted that feeling to come back and somebody said to me Beverly sometimes we just have to make memory pictures and so I make memory pictures of sunsets and sunrises because they don't always turn out but I remember them in here so that was one of them I um. I, one of my epiphanies was holding my second grandchild when she was born. Just minutes after she came out of the womb, I thought, oh, you know, I am so blessed. And I have such a relationship with that middle child. Oh, I have a relation, real a incredible relationship with the one that's here. But this middle one, is it's different. It's different. Um, I remember the spiritual experience that I had on the very moment that my son drew his last breath. It was an incredible spiritual moment and you know and who would have ever thought that but I was in tune to the God of my understanding and I saw what happened to my son when he left and it was an incredible spiritual moment Um, listening to speakers and not all of them speak to my heart And and I'm always surprised at when something will. But conferences and conventions and listening to speakers has always been a huge path to my recovery. I remember things. And so sometimes, you know, they'll touch on something. So just as I've done here, I've watched some of you laugh, some of you weep. We touch each other. And so that's another way. I remember the day that I went and picked out Logan. She was only two days old, and they painted this fingernail, and um, that that was my Logan. They ended up, she was the biggest dog in the litter, not the biggest female but the biggest dog and we got to have visitation and we watched her grow and we finally were able to pick her up on her eighth week and and bring her home they they um, said that a dog becomes a dog the last two weeks that they're with the mother and so they have to be with them until they're eight weeks and and I couldn't hardly wait to get her but you know she's just been magnificent so I was there and I picked out this puppy there was a day when I'm driving in my car and Sarah is a little girl and we had her a lot when Scott was dying and she has the longest brown eyelashes and huge big brown eyes you've ever seen. She's a beautiful little girl. Anyhow, she's sitting in the car and she's got the safety belt on and the sunroof is open and we're driving. She loves... Michael Crawford and he all the songs from the Phantom of the Opera. And from a time that she was little, we would play Michael Crawford and sing the songs to the Phantom of the Opera and it was just wonderful. And, and one day we're driving down the road and I look at this little girl and I see those long eyelashes and the beauty in her face. And I had this feeling of love come into my being and I never realized I was so capable of loving anybody that deeply. I loved that little girl. And I looked at her and I, you know, it was just, it just, it just overwhelmed me how much I loved that little girl. And then a few days later, we were driving down the road again, and I had fixed her a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and threw her in the front seat, and I says, here, eat while we're driving. And she ate, and got half a sandwich done, and she goes, Nanny, I'm not very hungry for this other half. Now, this is so unlike me. I said, oh, that's okay. And I reach over, I grab the other half a sandwich, and I throw it out the sunroof. And her eyes got as big as saucers, and she went, Nanny, what did you do? And I says, God loves peanut butter and jelly. Can you imagine, I'm the woman who has been eating for the starving children in China, and I throw a half of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich out the sunroof of the car. And so I, she was like in awe you know that I did that. And um, I have always been moved to tears when somebody sings Amazing Grace. But I want you to know that uh, in September, I was at a, conven- a woman's convention, and a Native American woman sang Amazing Grace in Navajo. And I want you to know I've never seen or heard anything so beautiful, because she did kind of a sign language with it, and I the hairs stood up and my tears were flowing down, and I was just and I looked around the room and I thought to myself, "You know, all of these women, there were 350 women sitting in that room, all in recovery, And there was this woman who says, "I have a gift from you from the Navajo Nation." And she's saying, "You know, it was so beautiful. It was so beautiful. And then there was a song that a woman sang at another woman's conference and she was singing and it was called I Can See Clearly Now. And it was at the time when I was getting, coming out of my my grief for my child. And the songs in there, the words to that song are so beautiful for somebody like me who's coming out of grief. And I sat there and I started to cry and they didn't understand why. But when I have been moved to tears emotionally, I'm in a transition. You know, usually I'm in a transition, either into loving or more spiritual growth. But it says in there, you know, I can see clearly now, this, the clouds have gone, you know, there's nothing but bright skies ahead, I can see clearly now, you know, it's just, I don't remember at all, I used to, I had it written down and I don't know if it's here or not, but the fact is most of you have heard the song and it doesn't really matter, but um, the girl says, oh, I didn't mean to make you cry, and I said, you didn't, I says, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of joy today. I says, I think that I am finally being able to see through the pain of the grief, which took a long time for me to get through, and I could see clearly, and there was nothing but blue skies ahead. And from that day until today, I've been on this mountain, and I am so grateful to be where I am today. Um, And then there's the deal where you're thinking of somebody, and they call on the phone, or they drop you a card, and today, with the the electronic thing, they'll send you an an email, you know, and say, I was just thinking about you today, Beverly, how are you doing? You know, and you write back and say, thank you for thinking about me. I love you, too. And that was seen. And So um, come to believe in the circumstances and ask yourself if you really believe. You know, have you really come to the place where, you know, like it says in step two, came to believe in the power greater than yourself that can restore you to positive thinking? And positive thinking is just an amazing thing, and it takes practice. We are people who normally do not think positively. And so are you thinking, you know, have you begun to be restored to sanity? Um, And I'm not going to go into the self part. Um, It's a little early. Um, I don't know, I guess we could break for lunch. And um, I've got 10 minutes to 12, and I don't know how long they're planning for lunch, but I'm thinking about an hour. So perhaps um, we could break for lunch, and we'll come back at quarter to 12. Is that good? Sure, quarter to 1. Quarter to, quarter to 1, sorry. I really have my clock set up. Is that good? Okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening, and we'll see you in an hour.